Hi, this is Bill Lingle, host of my quest for the best. Joining me today is Courtney Lynch, the founding partner of Leadstar, where she works with leaders ranging from those who serve on the front line to CEOs. She designs and delivers development programs focused on immediate results. Courtney is also author of Spark, How to Lead Yourself and Others to Greater Success and Leading from the Front, and has written numerous articles on behavior-based leadership and organizational excellence. Prior to starting Leadstar, Courtney served as a captain in the United States Marine Corps and an attorney at a large law firm. She's been a guest on CNBC, Fox News, and CNN. Her work with Leadstar has been featured in publications like Fast Company, Inc., and the New York Times. Welcome, Courtney. Thank you so much for having me on today. It's great to be here, Bill. Courtney, who was an early influence in your life that helped inspire you to become a leader? You know, it's amazing, right? We have so many different people and experiences that shape us, yet I will say, hands down, the experience that shaped me the most as a leader was my time in the United States Marine Corps. When I joined the Marine Corps, I was definitely seeking challenge. I knew I wanted adventure. And I remember people talking to me and explaining, you know, you're going to join the Marines and you're going to become a leader. And candidly, I really didn't have any idea what they were talking about, right? I I would smile and nod because I could read the context clues, but I didn't know uh, what awaited me and what really made a lasting impact on me were the leadership lessons, how to lead other people that I walked away from the Marine Corps with. What would you say was an experience when you were in high school that made you think that that was going to be a great step for you? You know, um, I was always a very athletic kid. Uh, I loved sports. I loved stepping up to take initiative. I was on student government, uh, those types of things. So I definitely was raising my hand for more responsibility, and I loved physical challenge. And so I think if you looked at me in high school, uh, those were two of the factors that definitely maybe were a little bit of foreshadowing that I might join the military. But Candidly, it was a real surprise decision for a lot of people that knew me well, uh, and I think that's because so few women joined the Marine Corps. Out of 180,000 Marines at any given point, only about 1,000 are female officers like I was. And when you left the Marines, you went to work for a law firm? How did that work for your transition from the Marine Corps to the law firm? Uh, Well, you know, I'm a GI Bill kid, so uh, American taxpayers funded my legal education, and that was a huge opportunity for me. I'm someone that most likely could not have afforded to go to graduate school, yet thankfully with my military service, the GI Bill is a fantastic vehicle. And so I went to law school after my time in uniform, and uh, through that opportunity was able to enter the legal profession uh, as a full-fledged attorney. And how did working at a law firm meet your expectations? <laughs> it's funny. You know, I um, I sold out. I sold out for the money. Uh, they came to campus. They recruited. It was a great opportunity to earn some cash. And um, I had suspected that it wasn't going to be a good fit for my personality. I met some great people. I worked inside an amazing organization, our nation's best law firms. Yet the work wasn't for me. Uh, it wasn't really playing to my strengths. The education, phenomenal. I use my law degree every day with the research and the work I do today, the consulting and the mentoring and the advising that I provide to clients. I'm so glad I had the educational experience. Yet the practice of law wasn't cut out for my personality or my personality wasn't cut out for it. How about that? So tell me about the transition um, from working in the private sector for a larger company to creating a startup. How did you, <laughs> was, did you end up getting contact again or did you know each other in the service? Tell us that yeah. story about how you started your firm. 
No, I love uh, going back, right? We're, our firm's about 14 years old, but I still remember the startup days like they were yesterday. And as anyone who's been through a startup experience knows, there's chaos. You don't know what you don't know. Uh, but there's a lot of ambition and a lot of vision at that phase of a business, right? You're motivated to work hard, and you know you want to add value, and you want to have a positive impact. And Angie and I were just just like that. We had some really amazing opportunities very early on, and we're very fortunate to be able to call Walmart our first client. So when you're a tiny little startup and Fortune 1 becomes your first customer, you learn a lot quickly. And Walmart really mentored and coached us as a vendor and helped us hone our craft as leadership development professionals. Uh, and from there, word of mouth really allowed us to build uh, our next client. Our second client was Burger King. Our third client was Cardinal Health. And we were just, you know, two folks who we had a lot of humility because we didn't have a strong platform to stand on, but we were very passionate about what we had to offer. And candidly, folks respect the Marine Corps brand, and so we were very lucky to have our experiences as Marines standing behind us. And we really wanted folks to understand that we could help them build leaders within their company and that the Marine Corps had been making leaders for a couple hundred years, and we were excited to be able to bring those best practices to the private sector. Now, this is often true where many business owners and business leaders in a small, mid-sized business space have fabulous products and services and solutions to offer but just can't get in front of the buyer. Is there a good story about how you got Walmart to be your number one client? Did you have a connection? Did you set them as a target and just marketed to them until you found out? I wish we had had a connection because maybe it would have been a little smoother, but Walmart was a cold call, but it was an informed cold call. Uh, I go back to my law degree and my education. At the time, Walmart was involved in a very large gender discrimination lawsuit. And I remember pulling uh, some of the publicly available legal briefs and really going through the nuances of the case. This was after I had seen the headlines, which were everywhere at the time. And as I was reading through some of the briefs that were available, I realized that the problems Walmart had, the challenges they had, I mean, when you're such a big organization, you're a cross-section of society, just like the Marine Corps was a cross-section of society or any major organization. Uh, and so my thinking was, if they had leadership development experiences, especially for their female employees, problems could be caught at the store level. If women were empowered, if women understood leadership and could do the practice, right, knew it in a way that was practical, they could step up, raise their hand, raise some red flags. Uh, problems or challenges in any one store or one location would be less at risk for becoming company-wide problems. And so that's we, we did a lot of research, and then we started cold calling in, and we just happened to connect to someone inside their diversity department whose father had served in the Marine Corps and really understood the practical value of leadership development for making any workforce better. So it was a little bit of research, a little bit of moxie, and a little bit of luck. Well, congratulations, because that's just such an ambitious goal to achieve as your first client. And I'm sure as you, you got into it, it's like, wow, we got it. Oh, my gosh, now what? <laughs> yeah, and let's be really honest, right? Walmart was really gracious. They really appreciate veteran-owned companies. They could probably tell how hard we were trying, and they knew that there probably wouldn't be any risk to being the early adopters of this organization. You know, they could see what we were doing, was what we were trying to do was – 
purely be of service and value add. So I, I say it's kudos to Walmart more than I say it's kudos <laughs> to us for really investing in a small, veteran-owned, woman-owned business. If you think about the clients that you serve now, mm-hmm. what are the issues that they struggle with right before they pick up the phone or send you an email and say, can you help us? What are the issues that are on their mind? <laughs> It's people, right? People getting along. Anytime there's two, three, or more people working together, there's bound to be friction. That's just us as humans, right? And so uh, my colleagues and I always smile because we hear consistent challenges, right? Uh, how do we adopt a better strategy? How do we empower employees? How do we work in a virtual environment? How do we hold people accountable, right? I mean, all the challenges of people working together are pretty consistent. The joy of our work is that we get to work across all industries, all verticals, because people are people everywhere they go. And so it's basically the fastest way to sum it up is organizations are typically having a pain point and people not working together as efficiently or as effectively as they could is what seems to be at the root of it. Or the opposite side of the coin, a company is experiencing a tremendous amount of success and they're having to scale very quickly. And they know that how they provide intent and expectations to their people is really going to be the the difference in their market. So we usually come in when things are pretty tough or we come in when things are just going gangbusters. Give an example of a company you worked with that was going gangbusters or about to take on a big opportunity and realized proactively that what would best ensure their success would be to go through and and have some training to help bring about some good foundation for their growth. You know, it's interesting that you bring up training because that's just a small piece of what we do. Training and leadership development, um, actual like classroom and here's how I learn, is definitely necessary and is a part of what we do. Yet our clients bring us in and we integrate very deeply into their business. So everything that we do is about helping the client achieve their business goals. And yes, I definitely have examples. Uh, One of our marquee clients was Facebook, and we started working inside Facebook when they were a small company pre-IPO. They must have had about 150, 200 employees. And then through various projects, we stayed engaged with them post-IPO. And that was a company that was truly recognizing that people were going to drive value. Certainly their technology was excellent, and they were able to scale that uh, far into every nook and cranny of our world, yet they knew they had to equip people with the skills that they were going to need to be successful. And as you can imagine, things were moving very fast inside that organization, and it was the true pleasure of my career to get to see that company grow up on the inside and work with their most amazing, talented professionals, a lot of which were young, and so helping their sales organization scale, I mean, so they didn't get overwhelmed with the amount of opportunity in the market, working with small teams and teaching them skills again, straight-up leadership skills, how to be credible, how to be accountable, how to have a sense of service towards each other, Uh, everything that I had learned as a Marine Corps officer. What would you say characterized their disposition towards leadership? Because I think that many people in technology would say, well, why don't they do it? I just sent them an email. That should explain what we want done. (laughs) Well, basically, (laughs) they had such courage, right, as individuals. And so they would say it. They would get it out there. I mean, this was a truly elite organization, and I recognized it from the moment I stepped foot uh, the first time in their offices. But, yeah, you're right. (laughs) We work a lot in the energy industry, a lot with engineers. I sent the email. I asked for the task to be done. 
but uh, it's really that human connection. And that human connection can happen virtually, just like you and I are having a, a call today and, and doing your show. We're connecting, and there's lots of different ways to connect, and, and we like to help our clients see the practical ways, even in a virtual environment, a fast-paced environment, or an environment of mathematicians, computer scientists, and engineers, greater human connection can happen. And that's what Facebook was all about and still is all about, making the world more open and connected. What are one or two tips that you give people who are connecting primarily through remote locations? You know, I really encourage them to make sure they continue to have spontaneous contact, uh, agendaless conversations. So they're proactively reaching out to their peers, not just the planned 2 o'clock call on Wednesday, but they're proactively, spontaneously reaching out. And they're having conversations that you would have if you were face-to-face, not just about the task, those conversations that are about life beyond work or are about development. But what can happen when we're in a virtual world is we can get very task-focused. I call you and I say, hey, Bill, do you have the report? And what about page five? And we talk about the data, and then, boom, we go on our way. And so I really encourage people to bring their whole selves even more in those virtual environments. That's so important, right? One of the tips that I always like to share also is, is to tell people that there's always a meeting that takes place before the meeting. And the more that you're part of that, the more that you're going to build your relationships and not just be part of the, the assignment and prioritization and probably strategizing that goes on in the meeting. No, I love it. That's right on. I have a son who plays football, and he's younger. He's just starting to play football, and they have the practice after the practice where the kids take off mm-hmm. helmets and pads, and they just throw around a ball, and that's really where the team bonds. That's also where my son picks up more skills, right, because he's not, he's not the star player. <laughs> he's still learning. And so during those informal moments, he just gets so much more uh, football. He gets so much more learning and I think that that's true for us as people, too, that informal connection before or after the meetings. I appreciate your guidance. I think it, it's definitely on point. What was the, um, the incident or conversation that was the genesis for Spark? Um, the book, How to Lead Yourself and Others to Greater Success. You know, I like to call Spark our greatest hits album <laughs> because it was really hard fought in the trenches, right? Uh, but that's what Spark was. You know, Angie, Sean, and I, my co-authors on the book, we spent thousands of hours inside companies. It's such an amazing opportunity to be a student of the best leaders uh, in the world because we work globally. And so every day at work, I get to see other people leading, and I get to learn from them, and then I get to support them, and I get to apply proven practices to their artistic leadership. And so Spark really was written over, I'd say, almost a five- to six-year period, even though actually sitting down and writing the book only took about a year. It was those five to six years prior to of learning and taking notes and working with so many different talented leaders that really led to, hey, we've learned a lot, and we want to share this so that uh, everyone has an opportunity, everyone who picks up the book, to be a better leader. Because I really believe we live in a season right now where people are looking at leadership in a lot of different ways, uh, yet when we really start to understand the essence of what leadership is, how you show up, how you behave, how you influence and inspire, better leaders really truly does equal better world and that's leaders at all levels. And so the three of us who wrote the book and my entire team at LeadStar were really passionate about helping people understand anyone has the potential to lead. And if we all just spend a little bit of time practicing it, great things happen within our communities and our greater world. It is a book that's very approachable by people who aren't even given the title. Um, yet I'm sure there are ambitious people who are listening to our conversation now who are saying, how can I possibly lead? 
my manager is the one who leads, or the director is the one who gives us the strategy, or the VP is the one who sets the direction and the, the KPIs in our company. What would you say to someone who's thinking that they just don't have the necessary authority within a company to lead. I think that our world is becoming more flat. Organizations are starting to trim the hierarchy. People have matrix relationships all the time. So I would encourage someone who's focused on what they don't have when it comes to authority or title to shift their focus to what they do have. As I talk about leadership, I never use words like control or compel or mandate or dictate because all those things are a joke anyway when it comes to leading other people. The moment you start doing those things, you become alienating versus inspiring. And I think it's really important that your listeners keep in mind that I'm giving this perspective having served in the United States Marine Corps. I don't think we can think of an organization that has more of a reputation for being hierarchical than the military. Yet when you're inside the military, you start to realize that, yeah, you might have rank. I mean, I was an officer. Great. Had very little to do with my ability to lead. It was my behavior. Was I credible? Did I hold myself and others accountable? Did I have a sense of service and respect for others? Did I have the courage to be authentic? Those were the factors that allowed me to influence and inspire other people. And that's how we define leadership, as someone's ability to do those two things very well. How well do you as an individual influence and inspire? And some of the most you know, frontline roles that we have in organizations, a frontline sales representative, a receptionist, a new account manager, a, a frontline invoice processor, right? I mean, these are the folks that are making the company run, and their voice matters. And if they demonstrate leadership behaviors, they'll be able to influence their teams and the greater organization uh, in a really effective way. But people just have to believe that, one, their voice matters, and then commit to developing their ability to, to lead and to shape circumstances. What would you say the role of feedback plays into something like that? Certainly having a relationship where you're encouraging someone to stand up and find their voice and participate more fully. But the role of feedback, I think, is crucial, especially for someone who doesn't feel like they're being paid attention to initially. I do think that feedback is very important, right? I think that, and we talk a lot about feedback and spark, it has to be delivered in a way that uh, doesn't disrupt ego and stability, right? There's ways to give feedback well. And I think that all feedback that is delivered effectively begins with a lot of accountability. Again, someone who's thinking, you know, I'm not in charge. It's not my opportunity to lead. I don't have authority. They're really blaming a lot on the system in which they work. And I've found that feedback isn't well received if someone's placing blame while they're giving it. So I think the key is with feedback, we have to be accountable to our own shortcomings, our own gaps. And then we also have to be very open to receiving someone else's perspective on how well we are or are not performing. And so I think feedback really begins with someone being very open to understanding how they can be better. And when you're giving feedback that's constructive to someone else or to your organization or to your boss, you have to have be, you have to be in a place for it to be effective where you have the best interests of the team or your boss or the organization at heart. Or else it's just complaining. And I think there's a fine line between feedback and complaint. Are there certain ways that you help people understand how to not only come from that place of having the best interests of the organization and people in mind and in heart, but also to phrase it so that it's conveying that they're coming from a place that really has everyone's best interests 
at the forefront. Absolutely. You know, uh, I've worked with the Center for Creative Leadership for several years now, and they're a wonderful organization, and I love their model around giving feedback from a situation, behavior, and impact perspective, right? So when you're giving feedback, you're talking about specific situations, you're talking about specific behaviors, and you're talking about the impacts that it had on you personally as an opener to the conversation, as an opener to a high-respect conversation. And I'll give you a practical example. I mean, let's say, Bill, you and I were in a meeting last Thursday, and things didn't go well. And so I go up to you fairly, you know, shortly after that meeting. Maybe it's the next day. Maybe it's the Monday, but not too long after. And I say, hey, Bill, you know that meeting we were in last Thursday, right? I talk about the situation very clearly so that you can get there too. Yeah, you can remember it. And you say, yes, yes, Courtney, I remember that meeting last Thursday. And then I talk about the behavior. Bill, when I was presenting the sales numbers and I had some detail to share, you kept interrupting me. I would talk and then you would speak over me. That's a measurable behavior, right? I mean, that's something that I can coach or I can talk to you about or I can share. And that's also something you can change. And you might not appreciate it, but you look back and you can remember, oh, gosh, I was interrupting Courtney. But then here's where I own it. You know, I felt like my opinion didn't matter. I'm not telling you, hey, I felt like you were a jerk, Bill, or I felt like you didn't care. I'm not putting things on you. I'm just telling you how I felt. And that's a conversation starter, right? So I, you know, I talked to you about the meeting last Thursday. I talk about the interrupting. And then I say, I felt like my voice didn't matter. And then I looked, I just pause. And my guess is you seem like a great person, Bill. That wasn't your intent. And that gives you a chance to say, oh, my gosh, Courtney, you know, I was just so excited about the numbers and I had other data that I wanted to share. And I apologize. That was not at all what I meant to do. And then I can accept that with grace and dignity and we can all go forward, right? So that's what I I really believe that a lot of times feedback gets into a tough place because it becomes accusatory or unduly emotional. And we need to talk about behaviors that people can change and we need to do it in a way that sets the stage for grace and dignity and all of us to be tolerant of each other as we grow and develop. Sure, and to build relationships because that's what being high performers in business is all about is having great relationships and great competency. Yeah, and building trust, right? I just led a team meeting with my uh, larger team at Leadstar last week and there were some parts of it. I'm in, I'm in a huge development phase right now, right? You know, if you think there were, let's say, 10 rungs of success and the 10th rung is the best leader in the world and maybe I'm down at rung five, but I'm really pushing right now to get to rung six. And it's hard. And if I was just staying at rung five, I would probably be in a happy, good, copacetic place. But I'm really trying to grow. And so that means I'm making mistakes left and right. And I appreciate that my team gives me that constructive feedback because trust is high and we talk about things and we don't just uh, kind of, you know, brush them under the under the rug. And I think that's the mark of a high-performing team when you can talk about accountability. But a lot of teams will, you know, this sounds pie in the sky to some people listening because those teams aren't as high as performing as they could be. And instead, because people want to be nice or be polite or just go along to get along, they don't bring up the issues. Yet that's a choice. And when you choose that, no matter uh What's going on in that team? I can tell you that that team has more capacity and they have more capability, but they're not tapping into it because the courage for candor isn't quite there yet. That doesn't make that team bad or wrong. That's a lot of teams, maybe most teams, uh, but accountability and high performance are really tightly connected. I think another factor that you heard about in Spark was credibility, and you talked about four keys to being credible. Number one is understanding and meeting the standards of others. Two is having a small they-do gap. 
Three is communicating your intent and expectations to others. And four is holding others accountable when they fail to meet expectations. As someone is uh, listening to our conversation about this, and they're saying to themselves, oh, I don't think I would rate very high on those four areas. Where does somebody start to build their credibility given these very easy to understand tools? How do you start to put them into practice, Courtney? You know, I love it because the person who listens to the criteria that you just talked about for being a credible leader and says, I don't think I rate very highly there. I would say that person, because of that amazing self-awareness, I think self-awareness is the accelerant to our leadership development, right? If we can anticipate our blind spots and work to take action, that's growth, and that's where growth happens for us as leaders. So I'd say this person's in a great place, and I would really just encourage them. What I would do is I would talk about, you know, these are the four keys to being credible. How good are you at really, truly understanding and meeting the standards of others, right? Something so simple and practical. You know, sometimes we have a boss that, you know, they don't like a long email. They just want three bullets and our recommendation. Or maybe we have a boss that wants three or four paragraphs and our recommendation. The challenge is, though, if you know your boss wants the three bullets and you keep sending the three paragraphs, you're not meeting their standard. So I would encourage the person to figure out what are the people working closely around you expect and want from you. And it's not about do you agree with it. It's about how can you work to meet the standards others have. Then I would say the smallest commitments, right, having that very narrow say-do gap. The say-do gap concept, a lot of times we think leadership is really happening in the heroic moments, right? I mean, someone has a death in the family, and you do everything you can to, to take over their work while they're away, and you help them uh, through this very tough time. That is all very powerful and very helpful, and I highly recommend us supporting our colleagues that way. But it's really the simplest things. If you tell Brad on your team that you're going to get him the report Thursday at 2 o'clock, can Brad count on for sure by Thursday at 2 o'clock he will have that report? Or does Thursday roll around and you know that Brad's at the dentist and he's probably not even going to use the numbers until Monday, and so you get the report to him on Saturday. Again, if you've made a commitment, are you doing everything it takes to meet those, those standards that you've set? That's where credibility is won and lost. And then the other thing is about communicating intent and expectations to others. Whenever two people or three or more are working together, we have to be clear about what does success look like here. We uh, can't hide the ball. We have to tell people what we expect. And then when those expectations aren't met, we have to have the conversation. And that's where accountability comes in. If I tell you I'm going to get you the report at 2 o'clock and you're Brad and it doesn't show up, Brad has to have the courage to come to me and say, hey, Courtney, you didn't get me the report. And then Brad and I have a conversation, and most of us have a lot of pride in the work we do. And when, when someone tells us we've missed a deadline, we're going to go to the nth degree to, to, to get back on track and apologize, and it's no harm, no foul. Yet if Brad just continues to let me slide, and every Thursday I'm missing the report at 2 o'clock, standards start to become meaningless, and our performance as a team really does begin to slip. So those are some simple examples, but these practices are relevant and applicable to almost any situation we find ourselves working in when it involves another person. You talked about hiding the ball, and it made me think that you've benefited from your experiences both in the Marines as well as in athletics, you mentioned. Do you find that people who participated in athletics have any advantages when it comes to business leadership because of the sensitivity, awareness, not necessarily being able to think of basketball 
or kick a soccer ball, but the awareness and the communication and understanding what it's like to help a group succeed. I love that question, and uh, 100%, I absolutely do think folks that have had a chance to be exposed to anything that has uh, is, is in sport, you know, sports, right? And it can be individual sports, it can be team sports, because the key is the coaching element, right? When we're engaged in the practice of sport, getting feedback, we're not as defensive about it, right? Sometimes sometimes the sport of work, we get very sensitive. Uh, but work is a team sport. And I think it's great when we've been socialized to just get that feedback real time. And so I think that that's where our background in sports, anyone who has that, can really benefit. But I think that it doesn't have to be sports. I think music, I think the arts, anywhere where you're opening yourself up to feedback, right, when anyone enrolls in any professional development or any academic experience, they're saying, hey, I want to learn, I want to grow. And that growth mindset is highly relevant to us as professionals. We just need to bring it all the time, not in those times that we've specifically set out for practice, as in sports, or for learning as when we're a student. Really interesting response. It also makes me think about sometimes we don't know how to get that feedback even when we're open to it. And you you write about this in a story that I'd love for you to share. In 2008, when your business wasn't performing the way that you had expected it to and designed it to and counted on it performing, you and Angie and the team that you had then really had to make some changes. Can you share a little bit about that? 2008 was the real crystallizing moments of the economic crisis that many businesses faced here in the um, United States. Yet it was, you know, I mean, we were, you know, our company was still pretty young at that point, uh, founded in uh, 2004. So we were just heading into our fifth year of business. We had celebrated the four-year anniversary. We were in our fifth year of business. And then all of a sudden, all kinds of deals that we had were being put on hold, and clients were starting to back out as they made budget cuts. And so, you know, we were in a pretty tough place because at that point, we still had a small business loan, and, you know, we didn't know if we could go back to corporate jobs. It was it was tough. The good news is no one was in harm's way. No one was getting hurt. And so we knew that we had to be rational and make some pretty tough choices to account for all the challenges that we were facing. We had to go inward very quickly, inspect our business model, and think about how we could get uh, beyond it. And, you know, stress has a way of bringing out a lot of unproductive emotions. And when we're in stressful times, that can be when we are very focused on placing blame on others. And we had a, an amazing sales colleague at that point who was doing her best. I mean, she she was a talented sales professional, yet the market was not cooperating. And we had to kind of click in and figure out, you know, what's really going on here. And we realized that on us, we had, you know, let a lot of the details slip and had really called the model wrong in our profession. People want to buy consulting services from the consultants. They don't necessarily want to buy that from a third-party sales professional. And so we realized that some of the things we were doing and trying to do at a time that was difficult in the economy were not best in our in our business model. And so we started looking at other business models like law firms and accounting firms and figuring out how did they do business development. And so we actually took the time to correct our model. So the pain of the market really made us look at what were we doing wrong or what could we do a little bit better. And the the best part of that was we realized some flaws in our sales model. And then by 
adjusting them and getting more personally involved in sales and business development really set ourselves up to survive that very difficult time, barely survive. We did, though, finish the year with a small growth rate. And then the next year, as the economy was, I wouldn't say picking up, but it wasn't as frozen as it was in the third quarter of 2008, we actually experienced tremendous growth as a company. So a lot of bad stuff happened in the market, but we turned inward. What can we do? The market is terrible, but what can we do to overcome it? And being more committed and more connected to our clients, which is a practice we still have today, we were able to uh, actually develop some business development wins during that time. And to go back to what you said earlier, when you focus on the behaviors, that's where you make the biggest change. What are some of the behaviors that people would have observed you doing in 2009 that were not present a year earlier? Uh, Deeper relationships with our existing clients, making the ask for referrals, right? I mean, at our company, we're a boutique firm. We're tiny. And there's a tremendous amount of demand for the work that we do. Uh, Yet in those earlier years, we really had to ask for those referrals to get them. People didn't know to naturally refer us, and we had to talk about that with our clients right from the beginning. And I think in the earlier days, we were a little bit more like, we'll do good work, and we hope they tell everybody. Hope is not a strategy. We had to really be explicit with our clients about what we needed to do the work for them, certainly, but then how they could help us continue to serve others when they were pleased with our work. When you were learning about referrals, because – People would love to refer you oftentimes, but probably not have the skill, experience, or reference points to do it well. What did you do to find out how to coach them or educate them about how to refer you effectively? I would just ask. I mean, I would start a conversation, and I would just say, you know, hey, we've so much, you know, we've enjoyed working here, and we're doing this type of work here, but did you know that we do this? And I would share a little bit about the type of work we do, and then I would just ask, hey, could you keep us in mind, or could you make a connection? If I knew there was a specific person, if a client had maybe mentioned someone to me, and sometimes that was internal to the company, we would expand the work with that same organization, but maybe in a different department, or sometimes that was external. I and I would hear the client mention a connection to an organization that I was interested in getting to know people at. And so I would just raise the question. So it was a little bit of me listening a lot and a little bit of me having that courage to ask. Do you use that as a filter to whether someone's a likely prospect, or do you look to educate or influence people who don't see it that way? Obviously, it's much easier to find people who do believe in education, have evidence of investing in that in order to grow their companies and become more successful. But I'm wondering whether you found a way to actually help light a spark in people who have the potential but don't necessarily see the value of it initially. I think that's what's been so exciting about Spark is the pass-through rate and the sharing rate. We have some amazing book club tools that are available, and we just get stories all the time, every week, pictures and stories of people doing the book clubs and reading that book with a community of individuals at their workplace. Yet for us, it is candidly more of a filter, especially today. Fourteen years ago when we started LeadStar, a lot of times we had to explain to people why leadership development and why leadership development for folks at all levels in your company Yet today, a lot of people get leadership development. The industry has really grown, and there's lots of great players and providers in the space. So we really are looking for those that are deeply committed to people development for business case reasons. You're involved in so many projects, as well as writing and media appearances. What are some tools or techniques that you use to help you stay productive and on track, Courtney? I'm a multidimensional thinker, right? I think broadly. I like to think um, from a lot of different vantage points. Yet when it comes to doing, 
I'm very linear in the sense of I'm very specific. So it's interesting at any end of a work period, and sometimes I work non-traditional hours with the travel and different things I do, but when I'm calling work over for the day or the evening, I always jot down, and I still do this on a yellow sticky, even though I have an iPhone and I consider myself, you know, pseudo-tech savvy, I still write it down on paper. I jot down the things that I must do the next time I work. And when I do that, I look at the long view. Maybe I have to start something right now that doesn't need to be completed for about three months. But yet, if I don't get going on it now or have a key conversation now, I'm going to end up not having quality uh, in the 90-day period that it takes to get it done. And then I also write around down the urgent, right? Oh, I need to call uh, Tom back or I need to make sure I file this paperwork, right? So I always jot a list of two to four no more than for must-dos the next day. Well, Courtney, you've shared so many valuable ideas and um, experiences that you've had, both with LeadStar as well as with writing Spark, how to lead yourself and others to greater success. I want to thank you so much for joining me on my quest for the best. Would you tell us um, how to find out more about your company, the work that you do, and also what people ought to remember about the key idea of, of leadership? No, well, thank you first and foremost. It's just been such an honor to be on the show with you today, Bill. You have such amazing guests, and so I'm humbled to, to be included. And I'd love folks to stay in touch with us. I mean, Spark is spreading like wildfire. I mean, I know that's a pun, right? Spark the fire of it. Uh, we're so excited. It's a New York Times bestseller. We're so excited that, again, almost every week we're hearing of another organization uh, that is bringing this book to their employees. And there's lots of great online resources. Folks can go to Spark's lead, so just as it sounds, S-P-A-R-K-S-L-E-A-D dot U-S. So Sparks Lead Us. So that's sparkslead.us, and they can download all the free resources that are available to use with Spark. And I think the biggest takeaway message is that better leaders equal better world. And all of us, no matter how we define a better world for ourselves as individuals or for the teams and communities and families we're a part of, if we spend just an ounce of time studying leadership as compared to all the years of experience and academic pursuits and other things we've done to build our capabilities, we do become better at just two things, influencing outcomes and inspiring others. And when we all become better leaders, great things happen.